All right, well, good morning again. Thank you all for coming this morning. What a great morning we have, an opportunity just to continue to connect with God, I mean, through the worship time and now as we look into His Word. So if, uh, if you were here with us through our Bible conference, man, wasn't that an awesome time? I mean, really, that was really... Just, I mean, those were revival meetings. I mean, they just really were. And for some, if for some reason you were not able to join us, um, I'm, I'm sorry that you didn't get that chance because it was really just a great time. In fact, the messages are currently up on our website if you want to listen to those. Certainly invite you to do that as always. They're there available for you. But it was just great to hear from God, to be challenged by His Word, to have Pastor Mark Trotter back here and share uh, the things that God has for us and our lives as we're going forward. The theme of that conference that, that He laid out, He called it Go Hard, or go home, it was a little in your face, you know, which um, some people don't like, I kind of like, but um, it, was, it was about just going for it. And I just kind of talked about, you know, whatever happened to just going for it, and, and that was kind of the theme running through, that Jesus calls us to a life of complete consecration and surrender, and just forsaking all worldly ways, just going for it for the gospel, and, and we were challenged to do that, and that was an awesome, awesome thing. And as a result of that, there were a lot of people that indicated that, I mean, they just were responding and, and people filled the front here at the altar praying and other people at the end on Wednesday, just a ton of people. I asked how many of y'all feel like you just really made a decision to go for it with the Lord. I mean, there was hands all over the building. It was an amazing, amazing time. And so a lot of people responded. Some people didn't. Uh, some people just missed it. Uh, they just weren't here to be a part of it, and that's, and that's kind of sad. But, you know, having that fresh in our minds, it's not all that different as what we read when we look in the Scriptures. And, and that's exactly where we're at. If you have your Bibles, open to John chapter 12, because as we're working our way through the Gospel of John, and we're in the last part of John chapter 12, uh, it comes as no surprise, and we did not plan this ourselves, but this passage of Scripture that we have in front of us this morning plays right off of the heels of our missions conference perfectly. And um, it's exciting to see, but in, in the case of Jesus Christ in this story, what we saw was in chapter 11, Jesus did his final public miracle, and, and arguably his greatest public miracle, and that he raised a man who was dead four days. His name was Lazarus. And he raised him from the grave. And he was alive and walking around town. And they're a week into the, the, the Passover feast in Jerusalem. And Lazarus is there telling everybody how he was dead and now he's alive. And a bunch of people are following Jesus. I mean, they're responding and they're saying, I'm with that guy. And yet there were still others who, for some reason, and we'll see them today, just didn't. And I imagine, just because human nature being the way it is, that there were some people who just missed it all together. They just weren't in Bethany. They weren't in Jerusalem. And they just didn't even know about this thing about Jesus. Maybe they were home sleeping or something. I don't know. But the things that, the way people responded in the, in the days of Jesus Christ are not all that different from the ways people respond today. Isn't that right? And so as we look into this passage of Scripture, what we're going to see is specifically the response of the crowd as a result of this great miracle of raising Lazarus that he did in their very presence. And, and through this study today, what we're going to see are two required elements of truly following the Lord Jesus Christ. So I gave it the title, What Does It Take? 
to follow Jesus? What does it take to follow Jesus? We'll see that in the last portion of chapter number 12. Before we read that together, let's just pray. And Heavenly Father, as we come before your scripture now, I do pray, Lord, that our hearts are clean before you. I pray that the songs that we sang to you were sung in spirit and in truth, that we wouldn't have proclaimed something that's not true in our hearts. Our hearts are open and ready, and everything that we have is yours. So Lord, we invite you now, your Holy Spirit, to be our teacher, that you would come and show us exactly what you would have for us to do, that you would lead us, that you would be the one who would help us to see these required elements of what it really means to follow you. And and they're not hard to understand, but sometimes, Lord, wrapping our will around them and just deciding uh, is the challenge. So I pray that you would be the Lord of our lives in this hour, that you would make it clear what you'd have us to do and that we would have the courage to respond. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, the first thing that we're going to see, and this is very obvious, and again, sometimes we go through some things in the Bible that are fairly obvious, and God repeats them over and over so that we get it. I don't know about you, but sometimes I need to hear it a few times. It needs to be reiterated so that I make sure I don't lose sight of the very simple truths. And the first thing that we're going to see is this, what does it take to follow Jesus, is it's just simply a decision to believe. It's simply a decision to believe. It's it's an act of your will, and that's what we're going to be looking at in the first several verses. So if you'll follow along, we're going to start in verse number 37, read down to verse 41. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Esaias, or Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. It's all about making a decision to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it all starts. Now the first thing that we see in verse number 37, it says, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. So that communicates to me very simply that seeing is not believing. Seeing is not believing. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in the suburb of Jerusalem called Bethany, okay? And maybe not everybody was in Bethany, but now everybody's in Jerusalem for the feast. And Lazarus is there. It's the hype of the town. It's the story. There's the guy. You could talk to him. How many times have you ever tried to talk to somebody about Jesus And they're like, well, if somebody would die and then come back and tell me, then I'd believe. Yeah, no, that doesn't work. Uh, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them believe them. You know, that's what the Bible says. But at the same time, Lazarus literally was there at that time. These people were physical, personal witnesses of what Jesus had done. And yet still, some didn't believe. That's amazing to me that that's the case. And so one thing is for sure is that Following Jesus is not a matter of physical evidence. Following Jesus is not a matter of physical evidence. Nobody would have had more physical evidence than these people at this time in history with a man who literally was dead and in the grave four days because young people right here in front of me. Now, four days in the grave means, Lord, he stinketh. See, they got it. That was a miracle. That was a big one. 
we're learning some Bible down here, these guys. I mean, it's awesome. Listen, following God is a decision that you make. It always begins with a decision that you make. It comes from somewhere deep down inside. Because you just know that there's truth in it. You just know that it's the right thing to do. And you just decide you're going to give yourself wholly to it. Now, this decision to follow, it's much more than just agreeing intellectually with a set of facts. Yes, I agree that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, I agree that he died on the cross for my sins, and and I was raised in a family that was Christian, so that's enough. No, 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 you don't get it. It is a personal commitment of your will. It is a decision to make this reality your reality. And that's what's going on here. That's an important thing. These people in this crowd, they saw all this, but yet they're like, eh, I don't know. They were not denying that Jesus did it. They, weren't den- ever, they knew he did it. They weren't denying that he had supernatural power to pull it off. They couldn't possibly deny it. It would be ridiculous. Yet there was something within them that just chose, just decided, no thanks. And that just blows me away. That's just amazing to me. You have to make a commitment of your will. Verse number 38 in our text says this, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now that comes from a chapter in Isaiah that's very famous. It's Isaiah chapter 53, and I invite you to turn to Isaiah 53. Because we're going to read that together. And for many of you, this might be review, and for some of you, it may not. But you need to see Isaiah 53. So if you'll just uh, keep your finger there in John chapter 12 and look in Isaiah 53, and we're going to read the whole chapter. It's only got 12 verses. This is the greatest Old Testament chapter in all of your Bible to describe the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, this just lays it out there. How Old Testament Jewish people, or modern Jewish people who do not receive Jesus as the Lord and Savior, how they can read Isaiah 53 and not make the direct comparison to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ is just beyond me. I don't understand. Yet somehow or another, like the people in Jesus' day at this Passover, they see all that and they just, they just don't do it. And so, very reasonably, the, the, the Holy Spirit of God inspires John to write this part of what's going on. Yeah, these people, in the midst of unbelievable evidence, are still just saying, no thanks. And, he's, and that's what we'll see in Isaiah 53, this overwhelming prophecy that lays out who Jesus, what the Messiah is going to be like, and what's, what's his life going to be about, and his, most specifically his crucifixion. Yet still there's people in Isaiah's day, and he's saying, look, Lord, who... Who's believed our report? To whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? How is it possible these people don't get this? Just follow along in Isaiah 53. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he was made, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, that's an amazing Bible study and well worthy of your time to take time and to dig into that thing. But listen, that thing just screams out the life and ultimately physical death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it all starts out with Isaiah saying, Lord, who has believed our report? Why can't these people get this? To whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? I mean, what more evidence could they possibly need? Here's Jesus. He just raised a man from the dead. He's walking around among us. It's so obvious, and yet these people are rejecting him. That's the exact same sentiment from Isaiah 53 to John chapter 12. So rightly, the Holy Spirit interjects it right there. But let's go on down to verse number 39, 40, and 41, because this is very interesting. And people sometimes get confused. We're going to make it very clear before we're done. Verse 39 to 41. Therefore, they could not believe because that Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Now, if we just left these verses by themselves, if we just looked at verses 39 40 and 41, we might begin to think that possibly God is communicating that he has predestined some people to go to hell. It says they could not believe because God has done these things. And it does kind of sound a little bit like just maybe God has predetermined that some will and some won't. By the way, in today's circle of theologians, they they call that Reformed theology, a theology that comes out of the Reformation. Uh, They they sometimes refer to that as Calvinism, predestination and election. By the way, it's very, very popular today. I would venture to say that if you do much reading of popular Christian authors that write a lot of the books that are very popular today in Christian bookstores, a vast majority of them are written by people who hold to this theology that is called a Reformed theology, the idea that God has predetermined before the foundation of the world, kind of like picking the, 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 the um, petals, that's the word, off a daisy, you know, loves me, loves me not, saved, lost, saved, lost. You know. And God's doing that thing. And, and I'm going to show you why, specifically in this case, That's not the case. 
It's always about your free will decision to choose. I'm going to make that very clear. Today, we couldn't possibly study this whole subject today, but because it's in the Scripture, we have to take a look at what exactly does that mean. Now, one thing it absolutely cannot mean, it cannot possibly mean, it says they could not believe because, and it goes ahead and it quotes Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look at that in a minute. It cannot possibly mean that God predestined some to not believe that they would end up going to hell. Why? Well, glance down at verse 42. We haven't read verse 42 yet. It says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him. But because the Pharisees, they didn't confess him that they should be put out of the synagogue. We'll see a little bit later why these chief rulers that believed on him are not actually saved. We'll see that in a minute, okay? So just hang on to that. But understand, how is it possible that if it's supposed to really be true, that God has predetermined that some of these people could not believe, that just a few verses later it says some of them believed? Does that slap anybody else in the face like it does me? God says they could not, yet they are. And they're all going to the same place. And one of them in the list that's saved. And again, we'll get to proven why in just a second. So that ought to get your attention. That ought to show you. Now, here's the truth. The truth is, is that true faith in Christ, okay, is always manifest by making a decision. And that decision that you make absolutely will cost you something. It's going to cost you something. There's no doubt. You're going to have to take a stand. You're going to have to make it public. We're going to see that when we get through this. And and the quote that we have here, listen, is from Isaiah 6. It says, when he saw his glory. Okay, we're going to look at that. But know this, you have, absolutely have, a free will to choose. Nobody forces you to believe or to not believe anything. Our lives are not marionettes on a string. We are not robots. God absolutely made us in his image with the ability to decide whether we of our own volition want to love him or don't want to love him. That's very clear throughout the scriptures. Now, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw his glory, verses 1 through 8, we're not going to go there, but that's where Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train did fill the temple and he saw the seraphim and, and all of that and he says, woe unto me, I'm undone, a man of unclean lips. And the seraphim, he goes and he takes the coal off the altar and touches his lips and he says, okay, now your lips are clean. And he hears God speaking and he says, who will go for us to tell this people? Who will go for us and, 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 and whom shall we send? And that great response of Isaiah, you hear it preached all the time at missions conferences, here am I, send me. It's a great response. It's awesome, okay? That comes down into verse number eight. So that's the story. Isaiah is kind of transported up into heaven. He sees this glorious situation. God has this dilemma. He's got to get the message to his people. He's got to get the word out. Isaiah says, I'm a willing servant. Go ahead and use me. I'll carry the message. That's Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. Now, Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 are the verses that are quoted in John chapter 12. Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. And he said, okay, Isaiah, you're ready to go? You're ready to go and do this thing? Awesome. Let me tell you what you're going to say. Go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. 
And so what we're dealing with in this situation, this people, go and tell this people, first and foremost, you need to know this people is Israel. It's literally the nation of Israel, and God is pronouncing judgment. He's pronouncing judgment on the nation after an extended time of rebellion where Israel has continually and consistently cast down God's way and God's word. We are into the, to the uh, lineage of the kings of Israel and, and Judah. And what we have after Solomon and his sons, the kingdom of Israel is split into two, the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. And most all of those kings that you read about in Kings and Chronicles, most all of them are bad guys. A few of them are pretty good. Okay, one of the few that was good was a king named Hezekiah who would have been alive at the time of Isaiah. Okay, but most of them are bad guys who did evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, all the kings from the northern tribes, all evil, every one of them. In the southern tribes, every once in a while they got a good one, a lot of times not so good. Okay, and this is a time where we're heading towards eventually Israel is going to be taken literally, historically, physically into captivity in Babylon. And that's the judgment that's being prophesied by Isaiah. In other words, Israel, you have turned your back on me over and over and over, and I've been gracious and long-suffering and loving and merciful and given you chance after chance after chance. And yet you continue to choose no. Now, let me tell you what I'm going to do, saith the Lord. You're done. I'm done with you. Time's up. You've had your chance. Judgment is coming. That's literally what's going on in Isaiah. You've got to get the context. You don't get the context, it's going to mess you up. So in Isaiah 6, what is not happening, God is not making a declaration of sovereignly electing some Israelites to go to hell and others to go to heaven, something that he would have chosen before the foundation of the world. Absolutely not. That's not what he's doing. What he is doing as he's making the declaration that the timing has run out. You've pushed and pushed and pu- How many of you are parents, and your kids will push you and push you and push you, and you give them space, you give them time, and you remind them, and you love them, and you give them space, and you give them time, and eventually, let me just say in my house, eventually, time runs out. And you're like, I still love you, but judgment's coming. Because it's, we're done. We're done playing this game. And that's all God's doing. He's a good parent. That's what he's doing. So you need to understand something. Following Jesus is a matter of responding in time. Following Jesus is a matter of responding in time. Isaiah chapter 55, since we're kind of pals with Isaiah today, verse number 6 says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he's near. Do you realize there's times and seasons in our life when God comes in and and he makes himself evidently known to us? I think he did that this week here. And he's kind of, in a a word, not literally, but kind of in a way it plays out, passing through town, okay? In a very real way. And the question is, will you seek him while he can be found? Will you call upon him while he's near. There's one of the blind men in the Bible that was sitting on the wayside, Jesus passing through Jericho, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. He'll never pass through Jericho again. And that blind man that cries out to Jesus and ultimately, make a long story short, the disciples try and quiet him. They call him up and he says, what do you want? I want to see. And Jesus heals him. 
Had that man not cried out to Jesus when he was near, Jesus never again walked down that road, and he never would have been healed. That's a great picture of what we're looking at right here, because that's exactly what was going on. Call upon him while it is near, and in the case in John chapter 12, that's exactly what we have. He has manifest a God moment. I raised a man from the grave. The evidence is right before you. Now, if you reject this, you know what? There's no hope for you. I'm not predetermining before the foundation of the world that you must go to hell. You made your choice. And you said, no, thank you. And God said, okay. Time's up. Time's up. It's a matter of responding in time. You always have a choice. Now, it's very interesting, and I feel like we need to address this just a little bit because some of you may be a little confused about this Reformed theology thing. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, is a frequently quoted passage of Scripture in the New Testament. It is quoted in the New Testament four times. That's, That's fairly significant. One is obviously here in John chapter 12. The other three, okay, The first one is in Matthew chapter 13. And in Matthew chapter 13, we're not going there, we're not studying, just write it down if you're interested. In Matthew chapter 13, the first time chronologically we see it quoted is right after, this is deep, you already got your pencils? Hang on. Matthew 13 is immediately after Matthew 12. They pay me for this. In Matthew 12, there's a significant event in the chronology of Jesus' ministry. There is an event that is referred to as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, where basically Jesus had done all these miracles in their presence, similar to John 12, only it happened earlier. And they attributed all of his works to the devil. And immediately after they attribute the the manifest works of God through Christ to the devil... In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus begins to teach for the first time in parables. And he quotes Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Seeing they might not see, hearing they might not understand. And he did it on purpose. Why? Because he's like, wow, I cannot believe you all have not got this yet. So if that's the way you want to play, we'll start hiding stuff. We'll start giving it to those who are only interested enough to find them. The second, chronologically, would be this one in John 12. Lazarus, miracle, you reject that. Okay, quote Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Judgment, timing, too late. The next one's in Acts chapter 28. In Acts chapter 28, the end of that story, which is the Acts of the Apostles, but the bulk of the the book is about the, the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys. At the end, in Acts 28, Paul's in a Roman prison, okay, and he's, and he's talking and interacting with Israelites there. And he quotes Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, ultimately saying, after all that we've done and you still want to reject it all, you killed the Savior, and now you want to kill me, he's like, be it known unto you that from this day forth, the Gospels only go into the Gentiles. For you, Israel, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? To Israel, by the way. To you, Israel, it's too late. Time's up you're out. And the last one's in Romans chapter 11. And Romans chapter 11, written by the Apostle Paul, obviously, but it is all about, the context is about the nation of Israel. And it's about the nation of Israel and how God is dealing with them now during the time of the church, 
right, in this 2,000 years since the crucifixion. And so Israel, kind of being on the outside, is living out this judgment of being blinded in part spiritually to the truth of the Christ. It's all after the rejection that they've already given toward the gospel. And so John 12, 38, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? It's revealed first and primarily to Israel. And you need to understand, when you deal with this issue and study the subject of election in the Bible, that the only one who has ever been elected clearly quoted scripture, and, I mean chapter and verse, is the nation of Israel. Israel as a nation is the elect nation. God sovereignly chose for no particular reason known to us other than he just wanted to. I'm going to select this nation of people and I'm going to make them special. And ultimately I'm going to set up an earthly kingdom and I'm going to make them the head of all the nations. And when I sit down in my throne on planet earth, it's going to be in Jerusalem in their nation. And so Israel was sovereignly chosen and selected to be privileged But yet within Israel, as the study continues in your Bible, within the political, geopolitical nation that is Israel, in Romans 11, it talks about a remnant of believers. Some will believe and some will not. For those of you who are real Bible students and you know some of the typology and pictures in the Scripture, you'll recognize how often the fig tree is used as a picture of the nation of Israel as a national entity. In Romans chapter 11, it refers to them as an olive tree. And there's just something about the olive tree that's different than the fig tree because the fig tree first shows up, by the way, in the Garden of Eden when when they sinned and they knew they were naked and they went to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. By the way, have you ever seen fig leaves? Have you ever noticed how itchy they are? Just saying. It's weird. The olive tree will represent spiritual Israel, the remnant. Olive tree in the Bible will represent Israel's believing subset within the political nation. You know all the people in this believing subset, Romans 11, and so all Israel shall be saved. That's not all of political Israel because I have a Jewish passport, an Israeli passport. No. It's because I chose to believe. And all of the believing remnant within the political nation of Israel that was an elect nation are believing from a free will choice. Every time, mark it down. Every time. Crystal clear. And so they are the ones that are chosen. Romans chapter 9 has some verses that confuse some people. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Well, Jacob is Israel. That's what his name was changed to when he wrestled the angel. Jacob represents Israel. Esau, his older brother, you know, he represents another nation. It's called Edom, an enemy of Israel. In the scriptures in Romans, it says that the elder, Esau, shall serve the younger, Jacob. Do you know if you study the scripture, never one time in all the Bible record does the man, individual man Esau, serve the individual man Jacob. Never happens. But Edom serves Israel. Because the context in Romans chapter 9 where it's talking about Esau and Jacob, it's really referring to the nation of people that come from them. You cannot take that verse in Romans 9 to mean that God sovereignly chose Jacob to go to heaven and sovereignly chose Esau 
to go to hell. It would be an error of context. So what does all that mean? What does that mean? Well, what it means is, is that you make your choices. And your choices are yours, and you make them by free will. And at the end of the day, what, what it's important to all of us to understand is this. There's no excuse. Don't sit back and, and allow your flesh or the devil to lie to you into thinking that, well, you know, God just decided, I'm in or I'm out, nothing i got to do. That would be an error. Because God says, man, just, just decide. Just decide to believe. And we'll take it from there. Just decide. So following Jesus is a decision. That's what it is. You have a free will. And so if you were with us, and many were throughout this conference, many people made decisions. And so, now what do you do? We prayed, we cried, we raised our hand, we said, yay, now what? Well, there's two key elements. One is you make a decision. A lot of you already did that. Congratulations, great, first step, now what? Second step, confession of belief. Confession of belief. The rest of the verses, we're just going to read the next two, because that's really where we're going to camp. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him, colon, semicolon, excuse me, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Sentence continues, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. We'll get to that last part before we're done, but let's just stop here for a minute. Do y'all really understand the dynamic that's involved when you say something out loud. I mean, there's just something to speaking out loud something that you say you believe in your heart. Making it publicly known. Making it manifest. Putting it out there for others to hear. There's just a power. There's just something to confessing our faith. I can't keep it bottled up inside of me. I have to tell somebody about it. That's exactly what we're seeing in these two verses right here. So I say it this way. Your public boldness demonstrates the reality of your decision for Jesus. Your public boldness demonstrates the reality of your decision for Jesus. Okay, I made a decision. I really did. God knows in the quiet of my living room, when I was all alone, God just made it clear to me, and I made a decision. And that's awesome. If that happened in the quiet of anywhere, awesome. That's great. But if for whatever reason you find it okay to keep it quiet and never, ever, ever tell anybody, then your decision... Love me a little, okay? Try. I know it's hard. Your decision is suspect. It's just suspect. I'm not saying it ain't real. I'm just saying God has a way of connecting, making a decision, and saying it out loud. There's just something about it. And that's what we see. These chief rulers said they believed on him, but peer pressure was too great. I mean, they were in with their friends, the Pharisees. They had positions in the synagogues. And the Pharisees had made it clear, you're either with us or you're with him. 
And they said, you know what, we're kind of enjoying our position. We kind of enjoy being bowed down to and given key seats and given respect and honor with our long flowing robes and praying the prayers and reading the scriptures publicly. And we, we kind of like all that kind of stuff, kind of hate to jeopardize all that just for Jesus. And they fall short. They fall short. Acts chapter 4, verse number 13. The story in Acts chapter 4 is you have Peter and John, and they go into the temple in the beginning of that chapter, and that's where there's a guy begging, and he says, hey, can you give me some alms? And they said, hey, silver and gold have we none, but what we have in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And another amazing miracle. And I mean, they're preaching, and they're talking about Jesus, and it's just blowing people away. They're like, wow, these guys. And in Acts chapter 4 and verse number 13, it says this. Now when they, the Jewish people around him, around the temple, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Now don't get this wrong, they're not stupid. Unlearned and ignorant only means that they were commercial fishermen. They would have not been educated in the higher schools of religious education of those days like the Pharisees would have been. So they were not necessarily known to be intellectuals in the area of theology. But they were bold for Jesus, and obviously what they were saying was inspired by the Holy Spirit, so it was right on point. And they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. They marveled, notice, and they took knowledge of them, what? That they had been with Jesus. So your boldness, once again, your public boldness demonstrates the reality of the decision that you make for the Lord Jesus Christ. You go a little further down in that chapter, in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 16, it says this. Saying, what shall we do to these men, the, the people who are in charge? They're like, man, they're messing up our gig here, man. We got this synagogue thing running, people loving us. He's talking about Jesus, it's messing it all up. What are we going to do to these guys? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. It's a, it's a good religious attitude, isn't it? Let's threaten them. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. That's what God's looking for. God's looking for people who make a decision and they make it completely, totally, sincerely to the point where it is manifest that you couldn't keep it in if you wanted to keep it in because you don't love the praise of men more than the praise of God. If you think that we need to please you more than we need to please God, you go ahead and judge that if you want to. But let me just tell you what we're thinking. We're thinking we're going to please God. That's what we're thinking. And we're just going to keep on preaching, and we're going to keep on teaching, and you do whatever you got to do, and we're going to do whatever we got to do. That's the attitude. That's what he's looking for. A decision to believe and a confession of that belief. That's really important. So there's a couple aspects of this belief and this confession that we need to look at. The first is the audience. The audience of your confession. Who's listening? The audience. And so here we have the chief rulers, and they believed, but they didn't confess. 
Like I said, they're influenced by their peers. Their peers are the Pharisees. The Pharisees got power. Okay? And they're in with these guys. They didn't want to lose their seats in the synagogue. Okay? It would cost them too much to really take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. It says they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So the issue is, we, we use this term in theology, and sometimes people don't understand it. Well, I'll make it clear to you. Lordship. Lordship influences true salvation as well as fruitful service. What is lordship? Well, it's making Jesus the Lord of your life. That's simple. What does that mean? The word Lord means, very simply, he's the boss. He's the one that's in charge. He's the one who calls the shots, not me. He decides what's right and what's wrong, not me. He's the one who's going to lead. He's the one who's going to instruct. How does he instruct? Well, he's given us his word. And we surrender to that. We die to ourselves. We allow him to live in and through us. He is our Lord. That's who he is. And when we live that way, not just say it, when we actually live surrendered to the will and the word of God, then it's manifest evidence that our salvation is, is true and it's manifest by fruit in our service to him because that's how he works. That's how he works. So the audience, these chief rulers, they had their audience and it was the Pharisees. It was their peers I don't know if you've ever noticed, in the Bible as well as in life, people who are prominent, people who are wealthy, people who have positions of power or are distinguished highly among their peers in society, people who have these high positions and whether it be government or business or whatever it might be, historically and biblically, rarely surrender at all to Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? They rarely do. They just rarely do. They, they count the cost. I don't know. They, they got a good thing going, man. They enjoy their life now. And to think about giving all that up and surrendering everything they have to the lordship of Jesus Christ is just too much for them. And so, not that it doesn't happen, but it's rare. It's infrequent. But as in the scriptures, as in common life, as in everyday ministry that you would understand if you do everyday ministry, the the majority of people who respond to the message of Jesus Christ are just common people, just like me, just like you. Just regular, everyday, ordinary folk who are definitely intelligent enough to understand the simple message and just say, absolutely, that's it, I'm doing it. Maybe it's because we got less to lose. I don't know. But at the end of the day, people who are in these high levels of office, of power and prestige and money and wealth and all this authority and leverage, they just frequently don't. They just don't. And just regular old folk. If you see yourself in that category, it's like, look, I'm nobody special. I mean, you know, I'm not stupid, but, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, and I'm not the richest, and I'm not the most powerful, and I'm not the most talented. I'm just another guy who's trying to do my thing. That would be me. Say, great, great. You're in a great position to let God use you because that's who he uses, and that's what we see. And here's the problem. The problem is, is that there's a lot of people in this world who are well-intending, 
I mean, they are. And, and they hear the message and they say, wow, that does make sense. And, and, and they want to give assent to it. They want to agree with Jesus. They're convinced about who he is and maybe they're convinced that he's worth following. They might even believe something in their hearts that I think he really did do that. But they never take that step and confess him publicly. Their belief is suspect. Because ultimately, Jesus calls us to believe, but it's not just lip service. There's something deep within us that is is metamorphic. It literally just changes us into an entirely new person. I think the word we used this week was transformation. And, And we're transformed into something new. And that something new just doesn't care about things old. It just doesn't. So how can I know whether somebody means it or not? Well, it's not easy for me, and it's not necessarily my job. But I can look in the mirror, and I can have a pretty good idea based on my willingness to make my audience God, not men. God and not men. You see, in salvation, it's crystal clear. If you look in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Actually, we'll look in verse 11 as well. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, maybe two of the verses most frequently used to lead more people to Christ in the church age than any verses in all the Bible. It says, And if, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart, God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. They won't be ashamed. I just worry about people who if you sit privately will tell you the right answers. But somehow or another when it comes to some public opportunity to speak and stand for Jesus, they always shrink. I worry about them. Confession has an element of salvation. Are you ashamed of what Jesus did? Verse 13 in that same chapter says, For whosoever shall believe on the name of the Lord shall be saved. No, that's not what it says. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You've got to believe it to get the words going. But you've got to get it going. You can't keep it to yourself. And that's why, friends, this element, when we talk about getting baptized, is so critically important. Now, before anybody get confused, getting dunked in the tank of water has zero to do with you getting saved. Do not leave here thinking that we're trying to say that baptismal regeneration in water washes away your sin. We're not saying that. But God is very clear that in this very first step of what, and what is baptism all about? It's public identification with Christ. It's publicly confessing, I have received him as my Lord and Savior. I am not ashamed to say so in front of God and everybody because he commands me to do it. And I will get in the water and I will be baptized and I will identify my life with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not saying if you don't get baptized, you're going to hell. I'm just saying a guy who says he's saved and refuses to get baptized is suspect. 
That's all I'm saying. He's suspect. And if you're here today, and that's you, man, we're just here to help you. We love you. We want to help you. We warm the water. <laughs> when we baptized him in Albania, it was cold. <laughs> I don't know what's holding you back. Unless, like the chief rulers, you want to believe. But for whatever reason, you don't want to confess. You don't want to confess. And a belief that doesn't confess, according to Romans 10, there's no salvation in it. Again, I'm not saying baptism saves you. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying it's a way to, to show forth the fact that you're not ashamed. You got that clear? It all also applies in our area of service. It applies in our area of service. Now, we stand before the Lord. We, you know, we go through this revival week, and it was awesome. It was great. I'm so thankful to the Lord what he did this, in this church this last week, aren't you? And many people said, that's me, I am in. And some of you have been all in previously. I get it, thank God for you. But many people said, I've been struggling, I've been in and I've been out, and I haven't been quite right, and God called me, and I nailed it, and man, that's me now. And, and, and that was a trance, I mean, that was a great moment, and it was, it was what I needed. And that's great. Well, similarly, we have the same scenario for those of us who have already been saved and for some reason maybe strayed a little and decided, okay, this is, this is my landmark. I'm driving a stake in the ground and saying God did something here in March of 2013. Galatians chapter 1 and verse number 10 says this. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. So the question is, who's your audience? Whom are you trying to please? Do the opinions of others factor in to your decision-making process to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? And, And you know, I've seen this for so many years. The people who can most influence you negatively in your pursuit of all innedness. It's pretty good, huh? Made that up. <laughs> Sometimes are the people closest to you. Sometimes it might be your family. So, so let's, just, let's just pretend that there's a teenager who truly in your heart, you're like, man, I, I'm doing this thing for Jesus, man. That's all that matters. And, and maybe, maybe you're a teenager who, and I'm, not, I'm just making this story up because it happens in life. I'm not looking for any particular individual. Maybe your parents are sitting over here somewhere. And you get all fired up about wanting to go for it for Jesus. And maybe your parents are like, hey, 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 hey. I mean, that's cool, man. We love Jesus too, but I mean, don't be a freak about it. Maybe they're your friends. Maybe you're tight with some good, close friends and you have served the Lord together. You've prayed together. You've studied together. You've won souls together. You've been in church together. You've done some cool stuff together. And all of a sudden, you know, whatever, eventually, maybe not all of a sudden, slowly and gradually, stuff changes. And all of a sudden, some of your very best friends in the world are kind of cooled off. And you love your friends. Man, you wouldn't betray them for the world. But Jesus is saying, I want more. And we've used this illustration before. And so you're walking down the path with Jesus and your friend. And you're all walking together and you're happy. And the friend decides to cool off. 
but Jesus is still going. <laughs> and, and before too long, you've got to let go of one of them. Which one are you letting go of? Because if I please man, the Bible says I will not be the servant of Christ. And maybe they're your peers, and maybe it's where you work, and maybe you have a certain position and a certain respect and a certain authority, and maybe people look up to you, and maybe you're on the verge of some promotion, or maybe something's going on in your life, and you're like, wow, if I really speak out about the Lord, I mean, I may jeopardize my career opportunities. Yeah, I hate that. If I seek to please men, I won't be the servant of Christ. If we jump down a little further in the book of Galatians, in chapter number 5, let me read a few more verses to you. In verse number 7, Galatians 5, 7 says, You did run well, Paul writes to the church. You started off okay. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Isn't that interesting? Who? Not what. Not what circumstance. Who? Who's the guy? Who are the people that hindered you from continuing down this path? Maybe it was your family. Maybe it was your friends. Maybe it were your peers. Maybe it were your co-workers. Maybe they were strangers. Maybe there was literal threatenings. I don't know. Who are they? Jump down into verse number 10 of chapter 5, and it says, I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. Can I tell you that If for whatever reason you, you might realize that you have been a hindrance to somebody else's all-innedness, God says that whoever you are that hinder another's walk, you will bear your judgment. That's a scary thing. If you're the one who's really trying to go for it and people are kind of just getting up in your grill... Know this, it, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I'll repay. It's not your job, okay? It's above your pay grade to mess with those guys. But God will. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. God will. It, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Listen, be not deceived. That's Galatians 6, by the way. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. He'll bear his judgment, whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, which was popular in those days, but not the, not the gospel anymore, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. In other words, if I caved into the popular message of the day, why would anybody be persecuting me? Everybody, be, We'd be getting along just fine because I'm preaching what they want to hear, but I'm not preaching what they want to hear. That's why they're persecuting me. I would they were even cut off, which trouble you. So Paul's basically praying, if these guys are getting up in your world and trying to stop you from doing what's right, my prayer is, is that God removes them from the equation. Have you ever wondered why people get really sick unexpectedly? Not all, listen, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying everybody that gets sick. Just wondering. For brethren, you've been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion of the flesh, but by love serve one another. God has given you liberty. He's given you freedom to be able to have some freedom in the parameters of how you choose to live out this thing, this decision that you say you make. Don't take your liberty so far that before you know it, you're just carnal. 
You're just not doing what God asked you to do. Don't do that. So have you made a decision to follow Jesus recently? We're emphasizing this conference because so many did. Maybe it was just before that. Maybe you need to make yours today. Are you willing to confess it publicly? You know, the rest of this chapter is real straightforward. We're going to just kind of fly through it in just a second, and I don't mean to downgrade the importance of it, but I really want to camp here for just a second. Got the connection card. And Andy asked all of you to fill one out. Okay, I'm going to ask you, if you have not already done so, grab one. And, and let's, just, let's just pretend. Okay? Let's just pretend that instead of connection card, let's just call it confession card. What do you say? And uh, maybe you normally don't fill out a card and for whatever reason, I don't know. Or maybe you've already filled it out and you got it ready. But I'm going to ask you to do something today. If you were here in this last week and you would have said, God did something in me, man, and I made a decision, my wife and I made a decision, my family made a decision, whatever your situation is, and I'm, I'm, I'm convicted, I'm turning from my old ways, and I'm going to go for it. And I'm going to tell you, on Wednesday night, I asked how many people said they made some kind of a decision. I don't know how many people were in here. I, I mean, there was easily three, 400 people that had hands up in the air. God has us in John 12. You make a decision, and you confess it. I'm going to ask you to confess it right here. So somewhere, I know there's not much room. Do do your best, you know. Write legibly. (laughs) And just tell us. Put your name. Tell us, what did God do? What is your decision? What has God called you recently to change? What is the commitment that you're making. And turn it in. And I'll tell you what I want to do with it. Because, by the way, we're saying we're not ashamed, right? I'd like to put together a video of everybody and how God's changed in their lives. Would you not love to see a video like that? Would that not just, I mean, supercharge you, man? Forget the Energizer Bunny. I mean to tell you, I mean, you would just be jazzed to go for it, seeing the scores and scores, hundreds of people saying, I'm in, God did this. If you communicate with us, we'll set that up. Now, logistically, no, it may take several weeks to get it done. But if you're serious, you'll do it. What does that do? Well, it allows you to take your first step and begin to publicly confess. We put your big old face on the screen over here. That didn't sound right. We put your lovely face on a big old screen over here where you can say out loud what God's doing in your life and what immediately happens. And by the way, this is why people don't want to confess publicly. You put it out there so the whole world knows what you said, which brings a natural form of public accountability. We hate that. We need that. And we put it out there. And we say, my audience is God. My audience is not man. Will you do that? You know, we're going to finish. We're going to sing. We're going to pass the plates. We're going to receive an offering. Just make your confession card and stick it in there.
That's your next step. It's easy. It's the thing we do. What are the key elements of following Jesus? You make a decision and you make a confession. And that's what we're doing. We're here to help you. And so that's what we've got going on. The last thing, and let's finish our outline, is the object of our confession. What is it exactly that we are to confess? Well, according to verse 42, it says they did not confess him. We confess Jesus. Of course we confess Jesus. What does that exactly mean? Verses 44 and 45. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me, and he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. In other words, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. So we are confessing that Jesus is God. It's just that simple. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is deity. He is God Almighty. He is Jehovah. That's who he is. Verses 46 and 47. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus is God. Jesus is Savior. He is the only way. There is no other way. Only he can save. It's not just religion. It's not you call him God, I call him Allah. It's all the same. All roads lead there. We'll make it all the same. No, absolutely not. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's what he said. That's what you confess. He is God and he is Savior. And the last things, verses 48, 49, and 50, he that rejecteth me receiveth Excuse me. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him the word that I have spoken. The same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. Jesus is the word. He's the living word of God. We see it all through the Gospel of John. We don't need to talk about it anymore. He cannot be separated as the living, breathing word of God from the written word of God. This is God's absolute final authority for all of our life in everything that we do. You want to confess Jesus. You confess that this book is the authority of your life. That's what you confess. You confess him. What does it take to follow Jesus? It takes for you to decide once and for all that you will believe him and you will count the cost. You you need to confess him publicly, unashamedly, in the face of any ridicule and let everybody know where you stand. Maybe for some of you, I'm going to start by getting baptized. For the rest of you, you write down whatever it is you have, you, you stand out on the street corner, you do whatever it is you think you need to do. And lastly, you just need to start living virtuously. We talked about that the last night of the conference. You need to start living your life in such a way that demonstrates that the decision you made and the confession that you made really means something in your life. So that's getting baptized. That's maybe becoming a member of a local church, hopefully this one if you're not already. It means that you're going to make a commitment to get connected with other people in this church in small groups. We call those life groups. They meet in the middle of the week. That means that you begin to support the ministries of this church financially as well as with your time and with your effort as well, that you would tithe regularly to this local body, not just finding your favorite charity in some other place and ignoring your responsibility to be a part of what God has for you, that you find your place of service and you serve, that you get involved in personal discipleship as a student. And if you have completed that that as a student, you become a teacher of somebody else. And you say, well, there's nobody for me to teach. Well, go win somebody the Lord and teach them. 
and you begin to live virtuously, you begin to do the things that you know that you should do, all the while renouncing sinful behavior and eliminating it from your life. We keep going back to it. I told you this was the year of James 1.22. Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only. Deceiving your own selves. We hear a lot, we know a lot. We do a little. We need to do better. We need to do better. Isaiah 55, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. If you wait too long, it may be too late. Let's pray together.